This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A group of Democrats have filed a lawsuit against 10 Republicans who posed as presidential electors following the 2020 election. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, Republicans named in the lawsuit met at the state capitol to cast electoral votes for Donald Trump and then sent official-looking documentation to the same recipients that official Wisconsin electors sent the documents affirming Joe Biden's win in the state. Law Forward, which is representing the plaintiffs of the suit, cited a state law that prohibits people from falsely acting as public officials. Its lawyers argue these actions set the stage for the January 6th insurrection of the U.S. Capitol in 2021. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call has previously declined to charge the fraudulent electors. The Dane County Humane Society is asking the public for donations to fund testing and treatment of wild birds for avian influenza, also called the bird flu. The highly pathogenic bird flu has already been detected at commercial poultry farms and backyard flocks around the state. The society disclosed that a duckling and fox have tested positive and its wildlife center needs more tests and equipment for rehabilitation efforts. Though avian influenza mainly affects birds, it can spread to other animals and humans. Wildlife species are most at risk, reported WISC-TV. The Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center is asking for $5,000 to fund bird flu tests, sanitation supplies, and personal protective equipment. Once again, funding for Dane County's jail project is millions of dollars short. The county's proposal to build a six-story facility that would replace the current jail is about $10 million more than the original project estimation. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the board looked at cost-saving measures in the event that there would be an increase, but none of the measures would save enough to cover this difference. Dane County Board Chair Patrick Miles believes further delays in finalizing the project would only continue to increase costs. The cost of a new facility project is now estimated to be $176 million. And speaking of inflation, costs are also rising for the Madison Metropolitan School District's projects that voters approved in a $317 million referendum in 2020. The district would need an additional $28 million, inflation and construction costs, additional mechanical and electrical work, and additional environmental elements are cited for these additional costs, reports the Cap Times. Construction is still in its early stages, and much of the remaining risk and budget increases are related to the age of older buildings. And now on to today's top stories. As a flurry of commencement excitement hit the UW-Madison campus over the weekend, a flurry of administrative activity was underway as well. Yesterday, the UW Board of Regents officially announced that Jennifer Mnookin will become UW-Madison's next chancellor. At least a few Republican lawmakers are not happy with the decision. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has more. Incoming UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin gave her first public press conference this morning, one day after the UW Board of Regents announced her hiring decision. Mnookin is the current dean of UCLA's law school in California, a position she's held since 2015. Before that, she taught at the law school since 2005. Top GOP officials were quick to lambast the Board of Regents' hiring decision. Republican frontrunner candidate for governor Rebecca Kleefish took to Twitter yesterday, calling Mnookin a, quote, 
woke radical and criticize the Board of Regents on the hire. She says that, if elected, she would prioritize appointing board members who value 21st century skills and free speech. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss castigated the decision, saying the decision walked back efforts made by Tommy Thompson and Rebecca Blank to strengthen relationships between UW-Madison and the state legislature. Voss also took issue with Manukin's moderation of a panel on critical race theory and her support for vaccine mandates. He also criticized Manukin for an alleged 2019 meeting with Hunter Biden to, quote, entertain a proposal that he joined the UCLA facility to teach drug policy, unquote, citing an article from the Daily Caller. The Board of Regents say that there is nothing partisan about Manukin's hiring. Board Vice President Karen Walsh told reporters today that the decision to go with Manukin was a unanimous decision, even among regents appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. You know, it's a free country and people can say what they want. And honestly, um, I don't take those comments very seriously. I don't think that's realistic. I, I would like for those folks to meet Chancellor Mnuchin before they threaten our, our funding. Foss fired back this afternoon, saying that stance was, quote, the same arrogant and dismissive attitude that's the problem on issues like campus free speech, unquote. While Manukin herself skirted around directly mentioning the comments, she did say she is willing to talk with anyone about her office. I'm really looking forward to talking to everyone, to a meeting with everybody who's, who's game to talk to me and to work with everybody to find common ground and ways to move both the university and this great state forward. I'm going to look forward to, to meeting people over a, over a beer or cheese curds or just getting the chance to talk and uh, to creating productive relationships, both within the university and, and well beyond its borders. Manukin avoided directly addressing the allegations of support for critical race theory and vaccine mandates, but defended academic freedom. I do think, again, and as, as, as Regent Walsh already said, that you know, academic freedom is just a key, key principle for great universities like UW and like UCLA. And that needs to mean the freedom to uh, pursue scholarship and research in all kinds of different ways, uh, certainly including along these lines. Another topic of today's press conference was race and belonging on campus. In the campus climate survey taken last year, students of color reported not feeling as positive about UW-Madison as white students. Additionally, the Daily Cardinal reported earlier this year that Native American students only make up around 0.2% of the student population. Manukin says that she will work to create opportunities for all students on campus to feel welcome. I think that that is something that, I'll, that, that I will treat as very important. I look forward to meeting leaders of the Ho-Chunk Nation and talking about uh, connections that already exist to UW-Madison and ways that those might be strengthened. That is something that's been quite important to me here at UCLA. And we sit on the territory of the Gabrielino Tongva peoples. And I've really appreciated uh, the opportunity to get to know some of the native leaders here in California and to talk about the way that we can work together uh, to support educational opportunity, uh, including for, for tribal members. Manukin continues. I think it's tremendously important to try to help everybody who's part of UW-Madison feel like they belong. I would emphasize 
this notion of belonging. We all are we all are different. We come with different backgrounds, different identities, different characteristics, and we often have multiple identities and characteristics. And so this isn't even just about race or ethnicity or political ide ideology or any or gender or sexual orientation. It's not about any one of these things. It's also about a sense of belonging and feeling like this institution is a place that supports you and where you can feel included. Mnookin will officially take over the role of UW-Madison Chancellor on August 4th. She will replace departing Chancellor Rebecca Blank, who is headed south to become Northwestern University's next president. Her last day is May 31st. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Shortages in baby formula are being reported around the U.S. due to pandemic supply chain issues, as well as after the largest manufacturer in the nation shuttered a major production plant after tainted formula killed two babies. To see how much Madison retailers are seeing the effects of this shortage, WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo canvassed dozens of stores this afternoon. In February, Abbott Labs, the largest infant formula manufacturer in the U.S., issued a voluntary recall of several brands of its baby formula and closed its largest production facility. That was in reaction to a deadly contaminant in the formula, which killed at least two babies and made several others sick. Since then, the recall, along with ongoing supply chain issues during the pandemic, has led to a nationwide shortage of infant formula. Recent estimates from Data Assembly, a company that tracks products and pricing at stores nationwide, say that 40% of the top-selling formulas were out of stock in late April. CBS reports that formula prices are up 18% in the last year as well. Morgan Fink is a spokesperson for Public Health Madison and Dane County. She says she's getting calls from parents struggling to find formula. She recommends reaching out to your pediatrician and the County Women, Infants, and Children Program, or WIC, if struggling to find formula. Fink urges parents not to try making homemade formula or stretching formula by diluting it more than instructed on the package. She adds that for most mothers, it is not as simple as just returning to breastfeeding for a variety of physical or economic reasons. Sometimes it's a little bit of a double-edged sword when we start talking about breastfeeding being a, an alternative. You know, there are certain situations where the mother has a hard time breastfeeding or, you know, the child does not latch on and, and there's there's an abundance of issues that lead to mothers not being able to breastfeed. But um, we do have support and lactation consultants for um, mothers who are potentially looking to have that be an alternative right now. To reach these lactation consultants, you can call 608-243-0449. WORT surveyed 18 stores throughout Madison to see if they are struggling to supply baby formula. Exactly half said that they have very little, if any, in stock at the moment. Stores surveyed include Walgreens, Festival Foods, Target, and Pick and Save, among others. One pharmacy manager in town mentioned getting over 15 online orders per day for formula over the last couple days, when he usually gets none for the same product. All of these orders have had to be canceled since this store is not able to fulfill the orders. Dean Callis is a manager at the Willie Street Co-op. I wouldn't say maybe like normal. I think that a lot of the SKUs we carry have been uh, hit kind of hard with the with the recall and now uh, subsequent shutdown of the plant that was producing them. 
the one uh, glimmer of light for us has been a lot of the organic ones that we sell uh, normally have been in stock, so uh, at least we've had something. Some stores, like Target on University Avenue, have buying limits, allowing customers to buy no more than four cans at a time. In general, smaller pharmacies seem to be more drained in the area than larger superstores and grocers. There may be an end in sight to the shortage. Yesterday, the FDA and Abbott Nutrition reached an agreement on steps to reopen the shuttered Sturgis, Michigan factory. Abbott estimates that production could resume in two weeks, with product heading to the shelves several weeks after that. For WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanzo. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, 270 new confirmed COVID-19 cases were reported in Dane County, with 47 people currently hospitalized from the virus. As we enter the third summer of the pandemic, as well as the county's second month without a mask mandate, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Morgan Finke with Public Health Madison and Dane County to learn more about the current COVID situation. So looking at Dane County, I just want to ask, just as a baseline, where are we currently sitting? I can sort of see that we have an upswing in COVID cases here, but what have what have you seen as far as COVID from your end? So as you said, locally, cases do uh, continue to increase um, here in Dane County, and we are also seeing that increase statewide as well. Um, so uh, the good news is that the hospitalizations Uh, While they are increasing slightly, the number of people with COVID in the ICU remains stable and um, hospitalizations are not increasing at the rate as uh, cases are increasing. So um, that is uh, one relatively positive piece of information. Um, Right now, our seven-day average of cases in Dane County is about 350. So again, that is a pretty high number, um, and that has pushed us into the medium level of um, COVID activity, according to the CDC, um, and that is where we remain. That will be updated this Thursday, Um, so we'll see potentially what our, our metrics are looking like on Thursday, but at this point, we remain in the medium category of COVID activity right now. And then now we are a a little ways out from when the mask mandate was lifted here in Dane County. So did you happen to see any sort of upswing in cases after that, maybe a few weeks afterwards? Um, So we've been without a mask um, order for about two months. 
Um, and, you know, of course, as we have seen, um, cases have been increasing pretty steadily, especially over the last few weeks. Um, you know, it, it can be, um, there are a number of factors that might lead to an increase in cases. Uh, that includes, you know, various um, variants of COVID and, um, you know, the time of year people are going outside and, you know, mingling more than usual um, or more than they would norm- normally during the winter. Um, people are socializing a little bit more. So there are a number of different factors that could play into an increase in um case activity. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, um, we, we, our face covering order went away um, in March and now we are seeing an increase in cases. So um, I can't say whether those two things are directly correlated, but um, it is, that is, those are the facts of the situation. And now we can sort of see the trajectory of how things are sort of currently looking. And, but now I sort of want to look forward here and I don't want to ask you to see into the future or anything but do you see the trajectory of COVID cases going up as we move into the summer months and like you said people tend to socialize a bit more do you anticipate a bit more of a surge so um we can't see into the future like you said I don't have a crystal ball but um we do have the benefit of time now and and we're able to kind of look back at some trends from um previous years with COVID, which is uh, something that we hadn't been able to do uh, in years past. So uh, when we look at last year and this time of year around springtime, we did see a a slight increase in cases. And then um, during the early summer, that was when we saw, um, you know, a drop in cases, pretty substantially a drop in cases. Um, You know, and anytime you have a respiratory type of illness, that, that tends to follow that um, pattern where you have um, high levels of activity during winter, um, you know, during respiratory season, and then during the summer months that tends to drop off um, a bit. So, you know, we can hope that that follows that same trend this year where we do see this, you know, slight spike in cases and um, see it level off during the summer months. Um, so again, we're we're watching these cases closely and and keeping an eye on the data, um, and again, um, just kind of comparing again to last year, uh, we have um, vaccines are are in full full force, um, in especially in Dane County where we have high high rates of vaccination. Um, so again, we are seeing a difference in the sense that. Um, our cases are increasing, but hospitalizations are not following quite that same trajectory. So um, there isn't quite as much severe illness. And so, again, the situation is, is slightly different in that regard as well. So mm-hmm. you sort of mentioned earlier, you talked about vaccines. And I look at the COVID dashboard pretty much every single day here. And the amount of people who are currently vaccinated with uh, the initial doses of the vaccine in the county has been sitting pretty much right below 80 percent. It's been sitting there for a while there. I want to ask sort of two questions. Is that sort of enough to limit the community spread at all with that number of vaccinations? And then on that note, are you doing anything to encourage people to get vaccinated at this time? 
Um, so as we have throughout the pandemic, we are always encouraging folks to get vaccinated. Um, and we're doing that through having um, numerous mobile vaccination clinics and kind of fanning out throughout the county, looking to um, reach anyone who may still be um, potentially not sure if they want to get vaccinated or maybe need more information about vaccination. And um, at those mobile clinics, we're also able to, you know, complete the vaccination as well. Um, so that's, that's one way that we are trying to reach people with um, information about vaccines. Um, you know, of course, we are um, offering, you know, information on our website, our social media, um, you know, at, at this point, just trying to um, answer any questions that folks may have um, through our community outreach um, and, and different organizations that uh, work closely with the public. So um, I guess to answer your question, yes, we are still, um, we're still vaccinating folks. We have our, our vaccine clinics in our offices and we have our mobile clinics um, at various locations throughout Dane County. Um, and, you know, certainly Dane County has the highest uh, vaccination rate in the state. And, um, you know, we're, we're very happy with that. Um, but there could always be um, more. It could always, you know, it could always be higher. Um, the more people who are vaccinated are improves our chances of keeping that severe illness level low and keeping those hospitalizations low and keeping those death rates low in Dane County. So, um, you know, certainly I would say um, we encourage people to get their primary series, but, um, you know, there is still a um, percentage of folks who have gotten that primary series and who are eligible for a booster and have not gotten it yet. So, um I, I believe the number is 63% of Dane County residents um, five and up are up to date on their COVID vaccines. So being up to date, that means that you've received all recommended COVID vaccines. Um, that's according to the CDC. And so we'd, we'd recommend that um, anyone who can get a booster goes ahead and does that um, just to kind of bolster that immunity that we have in our community. I've been talking with Morgan Fink with Public Health Madison in Dane County about the current state of COVID here in Dane County. Morgan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We'll share an award-winning report about a watchmaker in Cambridge. Wildlife Weekly explains how bird nests may be found in all manner of places. We get an up-to-date weather report after a week of above-average temperatures. And Radio Astronomy points a camera at the black hole in the center of the Milky Way. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. 
Earlier this month, WORT was recognized with five awards by the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association. One of the winners was Danielle Cronow, who produced several Slice of Life features last summer. Cronow won the third place award for best use of audio for her profile of Philip Smith, owner of a watch and jewelry repair shop in Cambridge. tell quite a bit about a watch by winding it and setting it. If it's wound up tight, then you know that it definitely needs a lot of work. Yeah. Located in downtown Cambridge near the top of the hill is Philip Smith's watch and jewelry repair store. He repairs watches and sells both. Okay, so um, after I graduated from high school, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, so I took a long trip and I wanted to pray about it, and I got to uh, Peru hitchhiking and I got very sick with dysentery, diarrhea and <laughs> anyhow I got into a place where they could help me uh, and now I decided this would be a good time to pray and a thought came in my mind to fix watches so that's how it began. I'll tell you how I got sick too because uh, this guy and I he decided to, we were going to eat bananas I like bananas. So we were eating all these bananas and drinking water. And I don't know how many bananas I ate, but it was way too many. So I got really, really sick. But for many years, I couldn't eat bananas after that. So then I ended up with this Catholic mission. And, yeah, so that's where I decided to. And, and part of it, too, I think, well, was I knew I was good with my hands and good with fixing things, potentially. And then. A lot of places didn't have clocks or, or watches. People just didn't have them in South America back in the 70s. Yeah. It was like a thought from God. At least that's the way I interpreted it. He went to the Joseph Bolova School of Watchmaking in New York City for 18 months before apprenticing for a year. He settled at the Cambridge Jewelry Store in 1985 and has now been there for almost four decades. After Smith got the jewelry store, he included his watch repair service. It's a pretty simple thing. There's the mainspring, and then you've got your center wheel and third and fourth wheel, and then you've got the escapement and the balance. Yep, and then of course if you got a day date and you got a chronograph, you got quite a few more parts and springs. He also repairs and dabbles in making his own jewelry. He doesn't do it a lot, but it is something he enjoys. I never was real comfortable with clocks. You only have so much time. And jewelry repair pays a lot better than watch repair, and watch repair pays a lot better than clock repair. So I do some clock repair, the simple ones, and the more difficult ones, I've got a, a guy that does them for me. The repair process for mechanical watches takes a while given his other priorities like repairing jewelry. Smith likes giving himself about three months on watch repairs. If everything goes well, the process takes from about a week to a week and a half. Smith works on one of the more interesting watches he has. So then you can see me there as well. So, yeah. This is that really unusual watch here.
This is one I had bought for parts. The main problem is cleaning. You got to take them apart and put them in the cleaning machine. I've got an ultrasonic cleaning machine. So yeah, a lot of times you take the whole thing apart and then you peg the jewels and then you, you clean the watch and uh, put it together and then oil it. Then a lot of times there's problems with the hairspring or change the mainspring out because it's not strong enough or one of the gears isn't meshing right. Oh, and then you got the timing machine, so you put that in your timing machine, and that tells you if it's in beat or if there's a positional problem. It's almost easier for him to order an entire movement when repairing a mechanical, analog, digital, or quartz watch than to do an entire cleaning. However, repairing a watch is no easy feat. Smith works with many tiny and delicate pieces that become frustrating to keep track of, but there are other struggles he faces as well. I wonder if loneliness is the biggest problem. It's nice to have help. It's surely nice to have help. Yeah, because you know I'm working on delicate things and it's always frustrating. He saw what looked like a sign at another jewelry establishment that said, beware of watchmaker. Watchmakers have a tendency, they're well known for being agitated because they are working on, and can be very frustrated working on watches. The repairing business is slowly diminishing because of technology advancement and less demand in an actual watch. When Smith started his career, he and others would repair about 20 watches a day. But as his career progressed, that number dwindled down to less than five a week. Time went by, there's been less demand. been kind of fluctuating, so sometimes there's less demand, but then a lot of watchmakers aren't as available as they used to be, so I've gotten more work. And then after this coronavirus thing, I haven't been here much, so I haven't been getting a lot of repairs since. Just kind of a nice break, I guess. The evolution of watches and their mechanisms have changed throughout the centuries. So back in, uh, I think it was around the Civil War, before the Civil War, watches were almost all key winds. You had a little key, and you opened up the first cover, and you wound up the watch with a key. Then they had, um, like, transition watch where you could do both the key and stem wine. So yeah, there's a lot more going on to set a watch, you know, because well, for one thing you need a crown, you need a stem, and you need um, the winding pinion and cannon. Uh, yeah, and then you also need a, a way to change it from winding to setting with that one little, so that's a whole different mechanism there. Yeah, so actually that little key, you could move the key to set the hand as well as wind the watch. So they're a lot more simpler, so there's a lot of mechanics that go into setting a watch like that. For WORT News, I'm Danielle Cronow. that went from key wine to stem wine. And there's a lot of differences between this and your standard American pocket watch. So that certainly was very interesting. There's a lot of things that I had to learn for the first time. 
Baby birds across Wisconsin are beginning to hatch, and while most of their parents build nests in trees, what happens when they choose a different home? What happens when a robin builds a nest in your grill or a duck in your garden bed? On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg walks through different places birds build their nests and what you can do to protect them. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about birds that are nesting and some tips and tricks that you might need to know here in the spring season. So we're going to start off by talking about some really creative solutions about birds nesting in different areas uh, that we have actually experienced here over the last couple of weeks from phone calls from the public. So my first example was a really cool situation where a bird had nested inside the grill of someone's, it was a big gas grill, and it was on somebody's porch. So the big gas grill had an opening, a very small one, that an American robin was able to get up and into. And they had built a nest on the inside, but the cover was closed. So it was a very interesting kind of conundrum to figure out, okay, well, what is going to happen when those American robin babies fledge? Where are they going to go? How are they going to get out? And is it going to get too hot in there because the grill cover is closed? Uh, This happens a lot. It's not just birds, but other species as well. We've had this happen with a grill maybe left on the ground and rabbits nesting underneath. So just a quick shout out, be careful when you start your grills and things in the spring make sure you have no animals nesting inside. Uh, Mice are also another good one that like to crawl up and into grills because it's a nice, nice, safe space. So these American robins had built this nest and it was also on an elevated porch where it was pretty far up off the ground. And so, you know, if they are going to fledge out of there at a certain point in time, which is usually about, you know, 27 days or so after they have, you know, hatched from the egg, then they are going to hop out, take the first few flights. And American robins are one of the species that spends a lot of time on the ground. So generically seven to 10 days on the ground trying to learn how to forage for worms and how to eat. And their parents teach them a lot of things on the ground, but it would be a very tall jump meaning that that bird could injure itself. It could fall, could fracture a leg, could hurt a foot. Um, So there were a lot of concerns here. One option was to move the grill. So if you think about moving the grill uh, from maybe, let's say, the top of the porch down to the bottom, that's a pretty far distance down. And would the parent even come back? She's going to be looking for the grill, right? Um, Maybe mom and dad both feed. But if the mother bird is brooding on top of the babies, which is keeping them warm overnight, she might not necessarily know that you've moved the grill a pretty far distance. So we generally recommend that if a bird's nest is in a particular place, first, legally, don't move it because technically they are prohibited from moving anything with the federal law, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, Any bird that is native here in the state of Wisconsin would be considered federally protected unless you had a permit to move those birds in that nest. Once they've laid eggs and once the babies are in there, you can't move them. That being said, there's a little gray area, you know, moving the structure, not the nest itself could be something. So sometimes people have tried taking the nest site. So let's say it's a planter or maybe uh, a grill in this case and moving it a few inches at a time. So not very far because the grill 
in this situation would be really close to being in the right space about the same spot, like a couple feet, not even that, like a foot at a time every half hour, uh, then the mom's not going to lose track of where that grill ends up. So a little tricky to do in this situation. So we advised in this case, probably not moving the grill. It also would have been a very big and cumbersome grill to move. So one other option was, okay, for overheating purposes, since there's only one entrance and it's at the bottom of the grill area, we said, well, let's try propping it up. So, you know, opening the lid just a little bit, enough that maybe you could put uh, something kind of sturdy, a couple bricks or something on each side so that the lid would stay open. And so the birds eventually would be able to fledge out and then onto the deck and potentially off the porch. Well, the fall from the porch is kind of a tricky one. So sometimes people have put some sort of barrier on the very low edges of the porch. So if it's a a railing that has a lot of open space where the birds can fall off, uh, you could do something as simple as just like a, a privacy screen around the outside, just a short privacy screen so that they can't actually get out through the slats. Uh, if you want to go cheap and just do cardboard temporarily, find some cardboard boxes and just kind of, you know, staple it up or secure them to the sides right at the bottom. Only needs to be maybe a foot up, although they will start to fly. So then eventually they might fly up and over that barrier. Uh, But maybe you make them kind of go down the stairs, (laughs) which can also be very helpful. At times it kind of takes making a little maze or a path that they are forced to follow to get down to a safer location. So those are a couple of tips that you might try to use if you have a nest in kind of a perilous location. Uh, This isn't just for songbirds. It also is great for ducks because ducks like to nest sometimes on tall buildings or on porches or on balconies. So if you have that type of situation and you know there's a mother duck that's nesting, I would definitely suggest making a barrier so that they don't fall, especially if the bottom is going to be concrete or some sort of asphalt or hard surface where they definitely could hurt themselves. Um, We, you know, it's they we do get many mortalities every year, especially in the downtown Madison area from birds taking that leap, Uh, even though they're pretty bouncy when they're little. Those little ducks, wood ducks and mallards definitely can withstand a lot, but not always if it's a very tall place. Um, So that is a really quick option is just kind of moving the structure a little bit at a time to a better location, potentially with more protection, uh, maybe opening it up from extra ventilation or an ability for the babies to actually get out of the structure that they're in. But remembering that also the parents really chose that spot because they feel it's protected and it's offering some sort of protection probably from the elements or from predators. Um, And then securing the base of open structures that might cause them harm if they were to fall off of them. So, you know, very tall port for example. Other things to think about, tree trimming at this time of year. Yes, I know it has to happen occasionally, but remember we've got nesting babies, uh, all different species of birds and mammals. Um, If you're going to cut down a tree, please check cavities especially, so hollow cavities to see if there are babies inside. Uh, We have had some re-nesting of little baby screech owls, for example, this year already, uh, where they're just in a small hole and takes a team of arborists to go up and put a little baby back with the care of its siblings and its parents. Um, So there's lots of cavity nesters. Uh, Most of your owl species, woodpeckers, uh, raccoons, squirrels, a lot of different uh, animals. So be be careful for sure. And if you cut down the nest and if the nest is actually still inside the tree limb, uh, there are ways to secure it back up into a high location uh, if you can keep that tree segment with the hollow intact. So definitely give us a call if you have any questions or you want some advice on how to do that. Um, Our number at the Wildlife Center is 608 
287-3235. So if you find yourself in any sort of bird situation where you're not sure, you know, could I move this? Should I move this? The simple answer is no, don't move it. Just wait until the birds fledge. But if they're in a perilous situation where advice from a rehabilitator could be helpful, we definitely are available to help or chat through any type of situation. So there's a couple of tips and tricks for you for nests in perilous locations. Thank you very much for listening to this segment of Wildlife Weekly on WORT. We hope you tune in next week. So this has been Wildlife Weekly. now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison's temperatures dropped by about 20 degrees Fahrenheit from last week's record-breaking mercury readings. Although cooler temperatures will be felt within the next week, a return to more heat is anticipated. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more about what to expect this week. Madison's weather has been dropping like it's too hot after three record-breaking days last week. The 90-degree weather stuck around all week, but we will not be seeing nearly as high as numbers this week. Madison is currently sitting at a cool 67 degrees as the cloudy weather is taking away from any of the warmer sunshine we might have felt. The wind is sitting at around 6 miles per hour, a lot lower than some of the wind speeds that we felt earlier in the week. The temperature and dew point are sitting near to each other, making it possible for scattered drizzles to pop up again in Madison and will likely continue into tomorrow morning. A year ago today, the high was 75 degrees, so we are sitting a little below what we typically feel in the month of May. It is likely that it feels much cooler than the actual temperature due to the 90-degree weather that we were feeling just a few days ago. Tomorrow, the rain will dissipate within the afternoon. The winds will keep temperatures cooler with a possible high of 65 degrees. Moving to Thursday, temperatures should go back up to reach 80 degrees and is looking to be dry as of now. Possible thunderstorms can develop late Thursday evening as the cold front makes its way through. Depending on how quickly the front moves through, we could possibly see some of those storms continue into Friday. With the cold front making its way through, temperatures past Thursday are expected to be much cooler than we have felt. Saturday is looking to be in the chilly upper 50s, which is not the weather that we were quite expecting to feel as summer vacation begins. Although the clouds were prominent today, remember to wear sunscreen. The UV index is still high, today reaching 7. The UV rays can make their way through the clouds, and a lot of the time people do not realize that, so they forget to wear sunscreen and get burned on a cloudy day. Protect yourself and your skin from the sun, and make sure you check the index. With your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. On this week's Radio Astronomy, hosts Dan Rabarczyk and Anthony Taylor talk about the newest picture of a supermassive resident at the heart of the Milky Way, the Sagittarius A black hole. 
Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Dan Robarczyk. And I'm Anthony Taylor. Today, we're discussing the release of the first ever image of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star. That's right. Last week, the Event Horizon Telescope, a global network of radio telescopes, announced that after years of observations built on decades of research, they have finally made an image of Sagittarius A star. This is only the second ever direct image taken of a black hole. And in reality, they didn't actually image the black hole itself. That would be impossible. A black hole is an object with such an immensely strong gravitational pull that nothing, not a rocket ship, not an atom, not even light, can escape its pull. What we actually saw was the hot, glowing gas surrounding the black hole in a ring-like structure. This gas feels the effects of the black hole's gravitational field and gets superheated, but it's far enough away that it doesn't get pulled into the black hole. It lies just outside of what we call the event horizon, the point of no return around a black hole. That's what gives the Event Horizon Telescope its unique name. In the image, at the center of this superheated ring of gas, we see a dark region. This dark central region, sometimes called the shadow, is the telltale signature of a black hole. It marks the region where light and matter cannot escape the black hole's gravitational pull. It's a feature that was first predicted by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. And now, more than 100 years after Einstein published this brilliant theory, astronomers and physicists are yet again proving it correct. And that's just one of the many exciting implications of this work that scientists are excited about. Besides helping us understand the fundamental physics required to form black holes like Sagittarius A star, which reside at the centers of almost all large galaxies, this discovery is teaching us a lot about our own Milky Way galaxy. The first clue that there was something exotic happening in the center of our galaxy came in 1933, when the astronomer Carl Jansky detected radio waves coming from the constellation Sagittarius, near the center of the Milky Way. Later observations would show that this emission was coming from a hot, compact region that they named Sagittarius A-star. An international team, headquartered in Germany, later used radio and infrared telescopes to study the orbits of stars around Sagittarius A-star. What they found was that these stars were orbiting Sagittarius A-star with incredible speeds. Using these orbits, they estimated the mass of Sagittarius A-star, which was then known to not be an actual star or even a clustering of many stars. And they estimated it to be about four million times more massive than the sun. This indicated that it was indeed a supermassive black hole. But despite being supermassive, Sagittarius A star still takes up only a tiny fraction of the sky, just a few hundred millionths of a degree. And on top of that, astronomers had to look through all of the stars, gas, and dust that lies between us and Sagittarius A star, a hundred thousand trillion miles away. That's why it took such complex observations and computer algorithms to make this image. That's right. It took telescopes around the world, all acting in unison, like a telescope as big as the entire Earth, to do it. And then they used some of the most sophisticated imaging techniques ever developed to isolate just the region around Sagittarius A star from everything else. It's an incredible scientific achievement made possible by hundreds of people from across the globe. And there's still a lot of work to be done to understand this incredible object at the center of our very own galaxy. Exciting stuff coming up. 
That's all for Radio Astronomy this week. Washburn Observatory will be open for public observing tomorrow, Wednesday, May 18th, if weather permits. Check our Twitter at Washburn underscore OBS for updates. Thanks for listening. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Lee. Your reporter tonight was Cameron Costanzo. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Danielle Cronow, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Nate Buggy Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrique Padio. Good night.